We're in a very exciting place in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We're finishing up chapter 13, which we've taken in three parts. Mark chapter 13 is a section of scripture that many people call the Olivet Discourse because it's mostly a teaching that Jesus delivered while he was on the Mount of Olives. And it has to do with the end times. Some people like talking about the end times. Other people don't like it at all. I'm glad that we just teach through the Bible book by book and verse by verse so we can talk about the end times as much as Jesus talks about the end times. And in Mark chapter 13, he definitely talks about it. And we've taken a look at it in three different sections. The first part that we saw two weeks ago in this first several verses of Mark chapter 13 is where Jesus spoke about the destruction of Jerusalem and signs that would come towards the end, but yet not be the definitive sign of the end times. He talked about persecution and war and earthquakes and famines that would come upon the world, but yet he took pains to point out that those were not the definitive signs of the end. And then last week, in that middle section of Mark chapter 13, Jesus explained what was the pivotal sign, something called the abomination of desolation, something referring back to the prophet Daniel, speaking of an idolatrous image set up in the holy place of the temple itself. And in that holy place, this idolatrous image should be set up and all the world would be commanded to worship it. And Jesus said, when, when people on the earth see that image set up, they should know that, that tribulation is going to follow it. And Jesus spoke of that great tribulation. Now, beginning at verse 24, Jesus is going to speak about what will come after the tribulation associated with the abomination of desolation. So let's take a look, verse 24. But in those days... After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Don't you just like reading that? Don't you like filling your mind with, with the thought, with the idea, with the anticipation of Jesus Christ coming in glory and power back to this earth. There's something so beautiful, so fitting about it, about the, the clouds being parted and Jesus coming back with heavenly armies behind him, as it says here, in power and glory. There is something very precious about Jesus coming to this earth in the humble form of a Galilean carpenter, and we rejoice for that. But he's going to return to this earth in great power, in glory, and he's going to come to to end the way things are right now. It's not going to go on same as it ever was in this world. He's going to bring an end to it. He's going to establish a new order. He's going to overthrow the way things are done right now and establish a kingdom that will stand forever. And he said it'll happen in the time associated with, if you look at it right there in verse 24, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. I think this is an important passage because it tells us something about the abomination of desolation, that idolatrous image set up in the temple that we talked about last week. It shows us that it could not have been fulfilled back when the Romans conquered Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. Now, I should have you know that that's sort of the majority opinion of Christians through the centuries. 
as they've taken a look at this passage and what Jesus said about the abomination, desolation, and all the rest of it, they said, well, you know, all of that happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem was conquered by the Romans and when they carried in their legionnaire standards onto the Temple Mount, that desecrated the Temple Mount, and they leveled Jerusalem and they leveled the Temple itself. And then Jesus came in in a spiritual kingdom and he's reigned spiritually ever since. I understand that teaching, and I understand that many people, some of whom I respect greatly, hold it, but I disagree with it. I don't think Jesus is talking about a spiritual kingdom here. I think he's talking about a real kingdom, where he really comes in power and glory. And when it says that the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars of heaven will fall, friends, that didn't happen when Jerusalem was destroyed. Well, again, people will spiritualize this. We'll say, no, 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 what he's talking about there is not the literal sun or the literal moon or the literal stars. What he's talking about is the fall of the Roman Empire. What he's talking about is uh, uh, trouble and problems among kingdoms. What he's talking about is an earthquake here or a famine there. I'm sorry, that that's not how I read it. Maybe I'm simple enough to believe that when it says the sun will be darkened, I believe that the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light that you'll look up and the moon won't be shining. And the powers in heavens will be shaken. I believe it will be just like it says it is. You get the point of it, don't you? That the abomination desolation that Jesus spoke of in this chapter wasn't fulfilled back in the year 70 AD when the Romans conquered Jerusalem. That may have been a preview of it, a prefiguring of it, but it's still going yet it's still yet to happen. There will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And there will stand in it at one time an idolatrous image set up by a charismatic world leader. And he'll command the earth to worship it. And Jesus says, on the heels of that abomination, desolation will come great tribulation. And immediately after that great tribulation, he says, there will be cosmic disturbances. There will be catastrophe in the skies above. And then he'll come. He'll come in glory and in power, and he'll gather together his people from the farthest parts of the earth. I believe that has special reference to the Jewish people who will welcome him as Messiah, as indicated by so many other passages of Old Testament prophecy. By the way, you should know that when it talks about these remarkable events of the sun being darkened and the stars of heaven falling, Jesus is speaking right from the Old Testament. You know, so many of the Old Testament prophets give that same kind of scenario. They talk about the cosmic catastrophes in the skies and all over the heavens. It's as if the creation is groaning in one final crescendo before the return of Jesus. It's having this tremendous upheaval. Isaiah spoke about it. Ezekiel spoke about it. Joel spoke about it. Amos, Zephaniah. You can go through many of the prophets and you'll find that they make reference to just this kind of cosmic catastrophe right before the coming of the Messiah in glory. And so you see, Jesus is telling us that after that abomination desolation, you'll see this tremendous upheaval on the earth and then he'll come in glory and power. It's going to apply the lesson right here in verse 28. Take a look. It says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near, at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. 
Now, Jesus gave this teaching on the Mount of Olives. And we know from present day uh, geography and, and, and just taking a look at the Mount of Olives, but we also know from ancient times, from the writings of, of ancient peoples, that on the Mount of Olives, there were some pretty spectacular fig trees, some of them 20, 30 feet high. And it's very likely that Jesus, as he was saying this, motioned over to a prominent fig tree because he was on the Mount of Olives looking down upon the Temple Mount. He says, well, just take a look at the fig trees. There's something characteristic about fig trees. First of all, they're not evergreens. They lose their leaves and they go through that whole cycle of trees where they lose their leaves and then they get their leaves back in the spring and in the summer. But there's something interesting about the fig tree that Jesus refers to is that it's one of the last trees in the spring to show forth its leaves. It lays barren through the winter, and then it gets its leaves, but most all the other trees have their leaves before the fig tree gets them. So when the fig tree gets it, it's mid to late spring, and you know summer is near. So you see the picture Jesus is drawing. He goes, well, just take a look at the fig trees. Matter of fact, Jesus said this around the time of Passover, which is mid to late spring. And so probably the fig trees were just budding with leaves at that very time. And Jesus says, look, there's the fig tree. You know that when its leaves are showing, then sap is running through the branches and the branches are tender and the leaves are there and you can see them. You know summer's near. It's just a pattern. Leaves on the fig tree, summer's close. He says, in the same way, when these things happen, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see these cosmic catastrophes in the sky, you know it's near. You know his coming and great power and glory is right on the way. Let me say something else that I think is very interesting about this, is that Jesus isn't telling us anything new here. It's again something just repeated from the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, he says that the end will come 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation is set up. Isn't that amazing? He says, you see the abomination of desolation set up, this idolatrous image set up in the holy place of the temple in Jerusalem. You can start marking your calendar. 1,290 and a half years. After that time, then the Messiah will come in great power and glory. The end will come. And what this is, Jesus is repeating this idea from Daniel saying, the agonies of the tribulation. Should we remind ourselves how great Jesus said this tribulation would be? He said it would be the most intense time of suffering that the planet earth has ever experienced. He said that time will not go on indefinitely. It has an end point. Now friends, I think this is a very, very important and precious promise for people who are on the earth during the Great Tribulation and come to faith in Christ during the Great Tribulation. Not too long ago on Wednesday night, we finished up another study through the book of Revelation. And every time I teach the book of Revelation, I am absolutely astounded at what it says the earth will go through during this time of Great Tribulation. Friends, it's absolutely amazing to consider It talks about one-third of all the fresh waters of the earth being polluted. One-third of all the salt waters of the oceans being polluted. It talks about incredible judgment, incredible plagues coming upon the earth. You can estimate from the proportions and such given in the book of Revelation that more than one billion people will die on planet earth under the agonies of the Great Tribulation. Now, that being the case... If someone was on the earth during that period, don't you think they would find sweet 
comfort in this promise of Jesus that it won't continue indefinitely. That this isn't some thousand-year cycle that the planet is going through, but they can find assurance knowing, no, here we see the signs that Jesus spoke about, and just as much as when you see the leaves on the fig tree, you know that summer's near. When we see these signs, we know that the triumphant return of Jesus Christ is close. We can take courage, and we don't have to despair. Matter of fact, Jesus repeats the same idea here, beginning at verse 30, where he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. This is a verse that has caused a lot of people concern. They say, oh my, Jesus was speaking of his own generation. He was looking at Peter and James and John. He was saying, this generation will by no means pass away. So I guess you were wrong, Jesus. No, no, that's not the generation Jesus meant. Other people say what Jesus meant here was not generation, but actually race. And he was referring to the race of the Jewish people and saying that they would not be extinct on planet Earth and they would survive all the way to the end. And friends, that's a precious heritage, don't you think? I mean, when you see how Satan has focused his persecution and his anger and his wrath against the Jewish people through the centuries, it's a testimony to God's grace and to God's power that they survive to this day. When's the last time you bumped into a Babylonian? You bump into children of Israel all the time. You get the point, right? But even that, even though it's true, I don't think that that's what Jesus is really speaking about. When he refers to this generation, I think he's simply referring to the generation that sees the signs. The generation that sees... The abomination of desolation, the generation that sees these cosmic catastrophes in the sky, that generation is going to see the end. It's not going to be generation after generation living under this terrible tribulation. No, when those things happen, the end will be soon. Again, that will be great, great comfort to those who trust in Jesus during the great tribulation. Those who are on the earth in that terrible, terrible time. Did you see what Jesus said in verse 31? I mean, to to drive the point home, to, to, to make sure that we all understand it and that we all regard the importance of these words. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So many things we read in the Bible, and we just kind of let it go over our heads. I want you to think about what it means that Jesus makes such an audacious statement right there. Could you imagine me saying such a thing? Saying before you, and I'm just giving you my opinion, my perspective on this something or other, and I say, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. Well, you have every right to laugh me to scorn. (laughs) What is he talking about? Nobody remembers what you say five minutes after you said it. (laughs) It's not that way with Jesus, is it? Jesus stands up and he lets everybody know that his words will not just be remembered to the end of human history, but for all eternity his words will be known. I think this is one of the most wonderful and dramatic declarations of the deity of Jesus Christ. I mean, only God can say such a thing. Only God can say that what I say will last for all of eternity, not just time, but eternity too. It shows us that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but He's also God the Son and makes this amazing claim to deity to utter eternal words. Now look at it here as He gives us another parable. Verses 28 through 31 were the parable of the fig tree, speaking about the soon occurrence of the the, the coming of Jesus in power and glory after the cataclysmic signs of the abomination, desolation, and, and, and catastrophe in the sky. But now he's going to give another parable in verse 32. Let's look at it together. He says, But of that day 
an hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. I think this is very interesting. Jesus is giving a second parable. In some ways, I I think it stands in, in contrast to the first parable. The main message of the parable of the fig tree was, when you see these signs, you can know that the coming is soon. The main message of this parable is, you don't know when it is, you'd better be ready. Matter of fact, he says, of that day and hour, no one knows. And that's why we must take heed, because we face the danger of being unprepared. I'm going to discuss something right now for just a few moments, and I I hope it doesn't leave you more confused and with more questions than answers. But I think that based on this passage, just these two parables set side by side, and many, many other passages speaking of biblical prophecy and the return of Jesus Christ, I think that we have to say that there are two separate aspects of the return of Jesus and that those two separate aspects have to be separated by an appreciable period of time. I mean, more than just a few hours or a few days. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Jesus said very plainly in verse 32 that of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels, not even Jesus himself. He said, I've even denied myself that knowledge. Please, don't let let that throw you. Don't regard from that that somehow Jesus isn't God. No, there were many instances when Jesus took on humanity and added humanity to his deity, when he voluntarily gave up, not gave up, I would say, uh, uh, held back aspects of his deity. And so this is just one. He said, no, Father, I don't want to know. I'll leave that knowledge with you. I'll choose not to know this because I want the knowledge just bound up with you. But the whole point of it is that nobody could figure it out. I mean, the angels are pretty smart, don't you think? Obviously, Jesus is very smart. If it could be figured out just by intuition or knowledge, then they would know. But you can't know. Only the Father knows in heaven. Well, here's the point of it. Nobody knows the day or the hour, Jesus says in verse 32. But wait a minute. I thought Daniel told us that from the abomination of desolation, you could start marking off 1,290 days. So wait a minute. Can you know the day of his return or can't you? And the answer to the question is yes. You see, there's two aspects to his return. There's a return for his church and there's a return in triumph to the world. Again, one, nobody knows the day or the hour. The other, you can mark it off from the abomination desolation. But the Bible also says that Jesus will come in two different kinds of world conditions. I mean, we read these passages about the great tribulation. Friends, that's going to be a time of unspeakable calamity on earth when Jesus Christ returns in triumph. But there's other passages in the Bible, in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says when he comes, it's going to be business as usual on the earth. People will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. It'll just be life as normal. They say, well, which is it? Is he coming to a business-as-usual world, or is he coming to a world racked with calamity? And the answer is yes. 
He's coming in two different aspects. And then you go through the scriptures more and you find passages where it talks about Jesus coming not to the earth, but meeting his people in the clouds. And that his people will be caught up, snatched away, and they'll be caught up and meet him in the air. And then you go to other passages and it says, well, no, that's not how it works at all. He's going to come from heaven with his people and come as a conquering hero to the earth. You say, well, which is it? Meeting his people in the air or coming with them from heaven? And the answer is yes. You see, two different aspects of the return of Jesus Christ. And the reason why I say that they must be separated by some period of time is based on the different world conditions that they describe. That's why I believe, friends, that this coming of Jesus for his people, when he can catch us away from this earth to meet him in the air, I agree, it sounds fantastic. I stand before you this morning and say, I would never believe it except that the Bible teaches it. If somebody tried to tell me that, Apart from the Bible, I'd say, you've got to be crazy. You mean that one day, Christians are just going to be walking around doing their business as usual, and they're going to be snatched away, caught up to meet Jesus in the air, and people will wonder where they went? I say, yes, that's what the Bible says. You know, people are becoming more and more familiar with this idea. You know, that movie that came out recently, and of course the great series of books left behind. They dramatize the situation, of course, and they read in a lot to the biblical text, but the basic idea is eminently biblical. God's people will be caught away, and they'll be caught away from a business-as-usual world, but when Jesus returns some seven years later, it'll be to a world that has gone through the terrors of the Great Tribulation. So you see, the parable of the fig tree is really focused towards people on the earth awaiting for that return. Now, please, please. I'm not trying to say for a moment that the parable of the fig tree isn't for us. Don't go crossing it out of your Bible saying, well, I don't plan to be here during the tribulation. I don't need to read that. No, no, no. You need to read it. You need to understand it. But obviously, it's going to have its greatest application towards the people who see those signs that Jesus spoke of. But this parable, oftentimes called the parable of the householder, this is a parable that has tremendous application for us right now. I mean, just take a look at it again. Here, look at verse 34. He says, It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. Well, it's a very simple parable to understand, isn't it? Well, who's the master? Who's the man who went away to a far country? Well, that's Jesus. He's ascended into heaven. And there he is. He's not physically present on this earth. Of course, he's spiritually present. He's here with us right now. He promised wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be in the midst of them. But he's not physically present. And his kingdom isn't physically present on this earth right now. So he's away in a far country. Well, if you notice now, verse 34, he left his house and gave authority to his servants. Well, what's his house? Well, it's his church, the body of Christ. And who are his servants? Well, I trust I'm looking out on a bunch of his servants right now. And there they are. And if you notice too, his servants, what? Each one has his work. The servants have their work to do. And then he commanded the doorkeeper to watch. There are particular people who are like doorkeepers, and they say, hey, watch, watch, and they try to keep the rest of the servants alert. You get the point of it here, don't you? You see, the point of it is very simple. The master is away, so how are you going to act? 
Now, you know, some people have the idea. We, we don't know when Jesus is coming, so it doesn't really matter. Who really cares? Let's concern ourselves with other things. That's not the right attitude. Other people take the idea, well, we don't know when Jesus is coming, so we'd better find out and set a date. No, no, no. That's not the way you should go either. Friends, the biblical idea that Jesus is speaking of is simply to say this. I don't know when Jesus is coming, so I have to be alert, eager, ready, and working, ready for his coming. Well, it's just a quick heart check and life check for all of us right now. Is that where we're at? How do you do at work when the boss is gone? Boss travels away, goes on vacation course. This is heavy on my mind as I'm about ready to embark on a trip away. (laughs) You have to ask yourself, well, how are you at work when the boss is gone? Is the attitude, well, when the cat is away, the mice will play. And so, you know, you don't worry about, well, when you come in, when you leave, it's not so important. The work that you do, just kind of a general increase in sloppiness, it just doesn't really matter. Well, the boss isn't there. What does it matter? Friends, not only is that an ungodly and an unwise attitude to take towards your employment, it's ungodly and unwise to take that attitude towards your life in regards to Jesus Christ, our master being gone. You see what this is calling us to do, right? It's calling us to say, he's gone, we've got work to do, let's get at it. We need to say, Lord, make us busy about your work. You're gone, but it doesn't mean that we just kind of sleep around until you come. No, quite the opposite. Verse 36, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. Friends, when Jesus Christ comes, when that trumpet blares and we're snatched away from this earth, don't you want him to find you working? Don't you want him to find you productive for his kingdom? working hard for the sake of Jesus Christ and saying, well, Lord, you've given me this this job and this place of employment. Oh, I want to glorify you there. Oh, I want to serve you there. Oh, God, you've given me this family and I want to glorify you in my family. I want to glorify you at my school. Wherever you put me, Lord, I'm going to work for you. And so suddenly uh, your whole life is transformed. Suddenly you're, you're frustrated because, well, it's just doing the laundry every day and cleaning the house every day. And it seems like such a drudgery because you're doing it for your family and your family doesn't appreciate it the way that you think you should. And then suddenly you realize, well, wait a minute. I'm not keeping my house or the family's house. This is the Lord's house. I'm working for him and your work transforms. And there in your job, your boss is giving you a hard time, and it's not much fun, and your work's a drudgery, and it's a drag. But suddenly you realize, well, wait a minute, I work for Jesus. I need to be about his business, and everything's transformed. You see how this idea of watching and being ready and waiting and anticipating the return of Jesus Christ, it can revolutionize everything in our life. And when the church loses it, it loses a great deal. We need to keep active and ready and about our Father's business. I have to say, too, that I like the picture that Jesus left there in verse 34, where he said, and he commanded the doorkeeper to watch. I hope it's not presumptuous if I want to say I want to be a doorkeeper. I just want to stand there by the door and encourage people to to get busy about the work. 
and to say, hey, I'll watch, I'll watch, you listen to me, and I'll encourage you to do the work, and I'll be just like the doorkeeper at the big apartment building, you know, standing outside there in the funny coat and the hat, helping people. The house doesn't belong to him, but he just helps people in and out of the house, and he works, and, and that, that's what I want to be, the doorkeeper, helping any way that I can. You see, that's what God's given us to do, to be about the work that he gives us. And notice very carefully in verse 34, he says, and each to his work. Oh, I love that. To his work. You have your work to do. Well, you're not called to do my work. You're not called to do the work of the person sitting next to you. You're called to do your work. You say, well, I don't know what my work is. Well, have you asked the Lord? If you got down on your knees before him and spent some time asking day after day, I guarantee if you would make that your prayer every day for a week, I think God would show you what your work is. I really do. I think he'd make it clear to you. He'd say, well, this is the work I have you to do. And maybe he wouldn't spell out what all your work is going to be for the rest of your life, but I think he'd show you what your work is right now. And then you'd go and you'd embrace it with a new sense of, of vitality and say, well, Lord, this is the work that you've given me to do. You'd be satisfied with it, and you'd say, yes, Lord, this is my work that you've given me to do. I want to fulfill it and be about my Father's business until Jesus returns. Friends, you get the point of it, don't you, there in verse 37? And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Be ready, be watching, be active, be working. Oh, the, the, the day is just for this casual, passive, mediocre Christianity. That's a distant memory, folks. We see the signs of the time and say, it's time for us to get about our father's business. And say, Lord, how do you want to use me? It's interesting, the ancient Greek word that's translated watch in this passage in verse uh, 33 and in verse 35 and in verse 37. It's the same word that we get our English name Gregory from. It's the ancient Greek word Gregoria. And so we get the word Gregory from that. Every time you meet somebody named Gregory, remember that watchfulness. Every time you meet somebody named Greg, remember that. Remember their name. Remember that it's a reminder to be watchful, to be waiting. Say, Jesus, I want to be about the work that you've given me until the very end. I remember hearing a story from colonial America where in one of the colonies they were deliberating in sort of a congressional body in the state and they were making important debates and signing documents and getting things ready to, to join as part of the Declaration of Independence. It was a very important meeting. And as they, they were there gathered in the hall in the afternoon, suddenly the, the, the clouds drifted over the sun and it got very dark and very foreboding outside and a cold wind started blowing and everybody got a little spooked. They said, gee, the sun's darkened. It doesn't look so good outside. Maybe this is the return of Jesus. Maybe we should adjourn the meeting and, and, and go on and do something else. And the chairman of the meeting stood up and he said, well, gentlemen, it may very well be that this is the sign of the end that Jesus is coming right now. But if he's coming, I want him to find me doing my work. So bring out the candles and put some light in this room and let's get busy. Isn't that how you want the Lord to find you? Doing your work. And for some of you, it needs to begin by finding out what your work is. Well, do this, please. Pray every day for a week and say, Lord, show me what my work in your kingdom is. And if you don't come up with anything after a week of doing that, then come see me, and we'll pray about it together. But I think if you do it, the Lord will show you. 
And he'll give you a vision. He'll give you an excitement. You'll realize that your life is lived for something so much bigger than the day-to-day thing that everybody else lives their life for. Or you've got an eternal purpose that God wants you to fulfill. And the thrilling thing in your life is fulfilling that. Let's pray together and ask that God leads us into these things. Father, I pray this morning and I, I pray that you give every one of us the thrilling excitement of knowing what the work is that you've given us to do. Lord, I pray first of all for people who just, they don't know, Lord. They want to know. Their hearts are excited about hearing about it this morning, but they don't know. Father, won't you teach them? As they covenant in their heart to pray every day for a week, praying, Lord, show me what your work is in my life. Show me what you've given me to do. I pray that you would show them. And Father, I I pray also for those here who know what their work is. Lord, honestly, they haven't been doing it. Lord, we just ask for forgiveness, and we ask that you set us in a right place to where we can be about the business that you've given us to do. Father, I suppose there's a third category of us out there. It says, we know what you've given us to do, and we've been busy about it. But Lord, it's easy to get discouraged along the way. It's easy to feel defeated. Father, I know that Satan would come against everybody who, who is busy about your business and wants to to get them to quit through discouragement or defeat or attack of some way or another. I pray that you'd you'd strengthen them all, Lord. Help them to stand strong and, and every one of us, Lord, to be about our Father's business. Lord, you've given us the opportunity to make a difference, not just for time, but for eternity. Equip us, Lord, to be people who make an eternal impact in our own lives and in the lives of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.